Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Lom, and today we have with us Larry Holmes to talk about his new book, Revising the Revolution The Unmaking of Russia's Official History of 1917. So it's good to have you here, Larry. Would you like to say a couple of words about yourself? Well, just a few words. Uh, I uh, received a Ph.D. in Russian history from Kansas University in 1968 and taught at the University of South Alabama in Mobile, Alabama, uh, until my retirement in 2005. And since the year 2000, I have been spending a lot of time in the city, Russian city of Vyatka, now named Kirov since 1934, And this book, uh, Revising the Revolution, among other books, uh, is among other books that I have written about the relationship between Vyatka, Kirov, and the center Moscow. What got you interested in the topic of writing official histories? Well, I had to choose in the mid-1960s, 55 years ago, uh, a subject uh, on which to write my dissertation. At the time, uh, the archives in the Soviet Union were closed to almost all researchers, Western and Soviet, and so I chose to write a dissertation about what the Soviet Union's party historians had to say about the 1917 revolution. I chose that subject because the books and the articles they wrote were readily available in the United States. And uh, after the dissertation, I didn't didn't really do much about that subject until uh, several years ago, when after 50 years, I returned to the subject, and with the result, uh, uh, the result is this book. So you introduce the book by noting that Soviet and Russian historians would have viewed history as the most political of subjects. However, our American listeners tend to think of it as a dry collection of dates and facts. Could you explain for us why history was viewed as an inherently political subject by the Soviets? Well, uh, let me respond in two ways. First, I think that many Americans are acutely uh, interested in history, although not necessarily what professional historians have to say about the past. Of uh, the uh, role and significance of slavery in American history is a hot-button topic. The uh, role of racism in American history is very much in the uh, uh, public domain now. Uh, the behavior and misbehavior of past presidents, and not just the 45th president of the United States, is very much in the public domain. Uh, We do not allow professional historians to participate much in that debate, but what they do say has some significance in that discussion. 
Now, as far as the uh, Soviet Russia was concerned, uh, history was a highly political subject, in particular for members of the party and leaders of the party, because they wanted, Lenin in particular, a history that justified and legitimized the Bolshevik seizure of power in 1917 and the Bolshevik regime that followed. So history was a very important subject to them. So can you tell us a little bit about the origins of East Part? Uh, Lenin wanted a history that was of political utility, as I just mentioned, to uh, justify what had happened in 1917 and the Bolshev- and his Bolshevik regime. Uh, and so he turned to a number of people, journalists and historians, in 1920 and asked for the creation of an organization that would do precisely that, that it would produce a history that wasn't just of agitational and propagandistic value, but one that would merit the attention of uh, scholars and non-scholars who would read it and understand that the revolution in 1917 and the regime that followed were historically inevitable and uh, worthy. Can I ask you to define propaganda and agitation for our listeners who may not be familiar with those terms? Well, uh, agitational literature would be simply uh, polemics as well as propaganda. Uh, Polemics, no effort to uh, research documents or read memoirs to um, compile the propaganda or the agitational literature. Lenin and the people he recruited, although many of them were journalists and had experience in the agitation and propaganda departments of local uh, party committees, uh, understood that they needed to write something a a little more um, scientific, as they might say, or scholarly than the usual run-of-the-mill agitational and propagandistic literature. How did this dual mission of scholarly um, history scholarly research and political useful history conflict with each other? Well, uh, in the beginning, uh, East Park's leaders and the historians associated with it thought that it would be possible to serve the twin gods of historical scholarship and political utility. So they felt that the more they, the more documents they read, the more memoirs they read, including memoirs not just by Bolsheviks but by others, uh, the more that the more research they conducted, objectively so, uh, the more uh, the the greater the ut- political utility of the result. They did. They believed that because they had faith in the inevitability and worth of the Bolshevik revolution and Bolshevik regime. They believed sincerely so, fervently so, uh, that the the better the research, the more utilitarian the result. And many of their publications were, therefore, until the mid-1920s, based on careful research of documents and memoirs and uh, not just uh, Bolshevik provenance. So how does the balance of this mission shift over time? Well, it shifted over time when, by the mid-1920s, and in particular in the late later 1920s, 
the party's leaders, and not just Stalin, and also the party's historians came to understand that historical scholarship would not lead to a politically utilitarian result, that the party and its historians now demanded a history of 1917 that emphasized the party's dominance and control of events uh, throughout the year. Well, such a rendition of history did not conform at all uh, uh, to a uh, uh, to what they might find through careful research and analysis of the documents and memoirs. So they wanted a grand narrative that made a grand narrative that made 1917 simple. Bolshevik party dominates throughout, so that the history of 1917 becomes essentially a history of party policy, real and imagined, in the year. What other problems did Ispart face when trying to write history? Well, from the very beginning, Ispart at the center, and particularly its affiliates in the regions, lacked the proper funding, didn't have the uh, money to hire personnel who were qualified. Indeed, there was a shortage of qualified personnel, cramped uh, physical facilities in Moscow and elsewhere. In the provinces, most of uh, East Park's affiliates existed uh, on paper, uh, and that includes uh, the East Park in the city of Vyatka, at least until 1924. It was created in 1921, but it didn't really begin doing much until 1924. I, I should add that a lot of members of the party, its leaders and its rank and file, uh, did not appreciate uh uh, the scholarly result that East Park produced. They just weren't interested in reading it, whatever the result. So it didn't sell. What East Park published did not sell. And that included its uh, journal, Proletarskaya Revolutia, Proletarian Revolution. Why was this problematic? Why was what problematic? The fact that their journal didn't sell and that their materials did not sell. Well, because it was a losing matter, the party had to pay for the loss. And this resulted in 1926 and 1927 in a major cutback in the publication plans of East Park at the center and in the provinces, uh, perhaps a reduction, an 80% reduction in what East Park planned to produce in commemoration of the 10th anniversary of the October Revolution. And a lot of historians who had begun their work and in some cases had completed writing their work were very angry when they discovered that what they had written would not be published or would be published in, highly, in a highly abbreviated format. You also write a little bit about personality conflicts, focusing on Trotsky and conflicts between historians. Would you like to talk about how those cause problems for Ispark? Well, if you're going to write scholarly history uh, of any sort, then you have to have a free and open discussion of ideas. There, there will be conflict over how, what resources to read and how best to interpret them. And you can't have good history if, there, if you have incivil, uncivil discourse among the historians who are writing it. So the conflict of personalities, and there were many at East Part, uh, particularly at the center, many pugnacious personalities, uh, this did not 
uh, uh, augur well for the future of East Park if East Park was to fulfill its dual mission of scholarly history of political value. Leon Trotsky published in 1924 uh, a hastily written preface to his volume on the 1917 revolution, the preface entitled Lessons of October, uh, which was a very political uh, essay in which he attacked his contemporary political opponents, Kamenev and Zinoviev, and embellished his, uh, for, for their support of the provisional government uh, and uh, Russia's war, uh, involvement in the war in early 1917 and for their opposition to Lenin's call for an armed insurrection in October of that year. Trotsky also took the occasion to embellish considerably his own importance in the October Revolution. Well, he was attacked by the party's leaders and by historians in a very political, highly personal way, although this did not necessarily endanger uh, East Park's scholarly dual mission in 1924, because um, Kamenev and Zinoviev admitted they had quote, aired, end of quote, in 1917, and an attack on Trotsky's vanity was hardly a fatal blow to um, uh, an effort to write scholarly history. But the personality conflict uh, did not augur well for East Park. Would you like to uh, elaborate a little bit on the personality conflicts between historians? You talk a little bit, for example, about Alinsky? Oh, Alinsky, who was, uh, by and large, uh, not technically speaking, the first head of East Park, but soon became its head and remained important there throughout the 1920s, was a very pugnacious, had a very pugnacious personality. I get the impression he didn't like anything that he read, whether a Bolshevik or a Menshevik or someone else wrote it. He was always on the... Uh, um, uh, attack, uh, a political warrior finding fault with everyone. This did not, uh, this was not the kind of leader that East Park needed if it were to have a civil discussion among historians over some of the thorny issues that came up uh, when writing about the 1917 revolution. And Olminsky uh, suffered a, uh, I can't remember, a heart attack or a stroke in 1923 or 1924, and it made him even more pugnacious and unforgiving in his relationship with other people. So you think it was his personality, not simply the way Russians often write very critical reviews of scholarship? Well, I think it's both. Uh, he's a he was a journalist. He was an agitator, a propagandist. Uh, he did, had no historical training, and I don't think that he he wasn't one of the people at East Park, even though he was one of its leaders, who who warmly embraced the the canon of historical scholarship. So it's both his politics and his personality. So let's shift from Moscow to Vyatka. What was East Part in Vyatka like, and what obstacles did they face? Uh, the provincial party committee in in the Vyatka in Vyatka created East Part, uh, its provincial East Part, an affiliate of the East Part Center in Moscow in 1921, but refused to fund it and refused to assign to it uh, someone who could uh, perform the 
uh, East Park's responsibilities. That was the case until 1924, when the provincial uh, uh, party committee appointed a fellow named Alexander Navasyolov to the post to head East Park. And then, in uh, although East Park remained by and large a one-man show, it was Novosiolov's show, and uh, then in 1925 and 1926 assigned a limited amount of funds to Bietka's East Park so that it could publish items on the 1905 revolution in 1925 to commemorate the 20th anniversary, and then a year or two later to commemorate the uh, 10th anniversary of, of the October revolution. So why was funding so difficult to come across? Was it they just didn't feel a need to fund these programs or there just wasn't enough funding to go around? Well, there wasn't enough funding to go around to support uh, the many responsibilities that uh, the the party had at the center and in the provinces. In the 1920s, the party could, could not tax in a in a loose sense of use of the word, uh, the population as much as it could in the 1930s. This was the period of the new economic policy when the party had fewer funds at its disposal. There was also the sense uh, in Vyatka that probably the result that the result uh, publications sponsored by Vyatka would not sell, and they did not sell. It was a losing uh, a losing affair. So these journals were expected to be self-sufficient? Well, they hoped that they would be self-sufficient and that the publications would sell. They did not sell. The journal did not sell um, because the public wasn't interested in party history and party membership wasn't that much interested in party history either. So the, the publications of East Part at the center and in the provinces were purchased by and large by uh, libraries. And I assume libraries were not going to pay the exorbitant subscription fees that currently scholarly libraries pay for journals. Well, they were asked to pay the fees, but there were few libraries uh, who were buying the items. There were few libraries that existed to buy the number of items that were published. You also talk about Novosiolov holding multiple positions. Would you like to tell us what other jobs he had other than working for Ispart and how that affected his work? Novosiolov had one other major position, uh, and he resented having that position besides his position at uh, uh, Ispart. As the head of Bietka's Ispart, he was also required to head the so-called political section of the local party archive. Uh, that meant that he was responsible for looking at the documents, vetting them, and deciding which could be read by scholars or other uh, individuals and those and documents that could not be read. He resented that position. He felt that someone else should be should hold that position. He wanted to devote his uh, ent- all of his energy to to uh, uh, East Park, and he felt that way because East Park was a one man show. He was it. Now there were other historians in the region who wrote about 1917, but because East Park itself was Novosiolov and no other.
He had to do even he he was his own secretary. He had to write his own correspondence, type his own work. He asked over and over again to, for the either the center or the provincial party committee to provide him with funds for someone to do the secretarial duties. Uh, he didn't get the funding. Was it common for many people who were members of East Part to have to wear? multiple hats, do multiple jobs in addition to their East Part responsibilities? Uh, absolutely, especially in the provinces. Uh, there were, depending on the year, 50 to 80 <clears throat> East Part locals, East Part affiliates in the regions. And many of them existed, as I mentioned earlier, only on paper. Those that did exist had, by and large, only one person uh, in the office. And they were they were asked to serve as journalists. They were asked to uh, uh, work for the local departments of Agitprop, agitation and propaganda, uh, to teach in local party schools and local pedagogical institutes. Uh, so in some cases, they wore four or five hats at the same time. And I assume this had a negative impact on their work for East Part simply because they did not have the time or the energy to devote to it. Oh, precisely so. Uh, Novoselov was one of the more fortunate ones in that he uh, wore only two hats in the mid-1920s. And so he had some time to go out and ask people to write articles for publication or to write books for the ten to commemorate the tenth anniversary, or to uh, collect and preserve the historical record uh, uh, for local as well as uh, municipal archives. So it, it it had a very negative the fact that Vatkas uh, East Park was uh, East Park in general was so poorly funded and supported uh, meant that it uh, could not do as much work as it had as it had originally planned. What was Novoselov's educational background? Was he a historian by training? He was not a historian by training. Uh, at best, he had what you and I would call a high school education. Uh, he had served as a member of uh, the, the local Agitprop, Agitation Propaganda Department, in a district in the Vyatka province before he came to the city of Vyatka and began working for East Part there. So uh, I doubt, we can talk about this a bit later, but I doubt if he had the appreciation of scholarship that some of East Park's historians in Moscow had. Uh, those, some of those historians in Moscow had had uh, training as historians. So you talk about Moscow's East Part and Vyatka's East Part clashing over interpretations of revolution. And you start with the 1905 revolution. What specifically did Moscow and Vyatka's Isparts clash over when writing the history of 1905? Already in 1925, uh, it was becoming clear that uh, party leaders in Moscow and the leadership at Eastpart wanted something in the nature of a grand narrative on the 1905 revolution that uh, emphasized barricades, the militants of workers, 
revolution in the countryside and the domination of much of this by the Bolshevik party, clearly uh, uh, to a large degree, a falsification of the events that in fact occurred. However, in St. Petersburg, there was revolutionary activity and strikes. And in Moscow, a revolution uh, later in the year. And in St. Petersburg, there was a Soviet led by Leon Trotsky. Well, they wanted something like that, like that written about Vyatkin 1905. But in Vyatkin 1905, <clears throat> there were, by comparison, few strikes, few disturbances uh, in the city and in the countryside, and uh, few barricades. And this was expressed in the major work on 1905 that Vyatkin's East Park printed and it was found thereby wanting by Moscow. Uh, but Novosyolov stuck to his guns, and the Provincial Party Committee supported him, and his point was, Vietka had its own distinctive history in 1905, and he wasn't about to falsify it. Uh, this, this, become, this situation becomes even worse when it's time to, uh, a year or two later to commemorate the 10th anniversary of 1917. <clears throat> and does Novoselov stick to his guns because he values the truth, or is he part of the Krajewiecki tradition in Vyatka? Well, I think that's both. I think that he's definitely part of the uh, appreciation for the distinctive nature of Vyatka's history before and after uh, 1917, which means you stick to the truth. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think that Novosyolov uh, was a principled adherent to historical scholarship, to the canon of scholarship, but he did believe that he should not falsify what had happened in Vyatka in 1905 and as well uh, in 1917, and local party leaders that is, the leaders in Vyatka supported him in that in that uh, uh, effort because they too, as local patriots, I think, uh, did not feel it was uh, incumbent upon them to um, uh, falsify Vyatka's distinctive history. And I, 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 perhaps I should take this opportunity to say a little bit about what happened in Vyatka in 1917 or did not happen in Vyatka in 1917. There was no October in Vyatka in 1917. There was no October Revolution. Uh, there was no Bolshevik, independent Bolshevik party until late May of 1917. In October of 1917, in the city of Vyatka, population of 40,000, there were only 70 members of the Bolshevik party, of the municipal organization. Less than 2,000 Bolsheviks in the entire province with a population of 3 million. Bolsheviks gained power in Vietka, in the city, later in 1917, thanks only to armed intervention from outside, from the south and from the north. And all of this was said quite clearly so in the major publication that Vietka's East Park uh, released in August of 1917 called October in the Civil War in Vietka Province. Despite the title, the point was there was no October in Vietka Province in 1917. And this created some uh, problems with people in Moscow. 
So you mentioned that there were not very many Bolsheviks in Vyatka. So I assume that many of the documents relating to 1917 and 1905 were created by non-Bolsheviks. How did historians deal with non-Bolshevik sources and their veracity? As long as the dual mission was more or less intact, uh, they were prepared to read those those documents and the memoirs by Bolsheviks and non-Bolsheviks alike uh, in preparing their histories of 1905 and 1917. And they valued these documents and these memoirs for their various points of view. They still had the faith until the mid-1920s that a scholarly history of 1917 would be a history of political utility. That is until, as I mentioned earlier, party leaders and the party's historians themselves, without clear instructions from the party leadership, uh, decided that a proper history of 1917 was a history that emphasized the Bolshevik party's dominance throughout. How did personal relationships affect the writing of the history of 1917 in Vyatka? Well, here I talked a little bit about the problem uh, that Vyatka's major publication on 1917 incurred because of its emphasis on the region's distinctive history. The problem occurred primarily with a fellow named Andrei Andrei Kuchkin in Moscow, who was a student at the Institute of Red Professors in its history department, and he had been in Vietka during the first half of 1917. And Kuchkin wrote a number of articles that were published in East Park's major publication, its journal, and several books to boot, about his role in the history of 1917 when he was in in Vietka, and he embellished considerably his own role, and thereby the role and significance of the Bolshevik party, which hardly existed, in Vietka in 1917. And so he strongly disliked the kind of stuff that was being produced in Vietka about 1917, and there was a sharp clash a clash of personalities as well as a clash over what was being said about 1917 between Navasyolov and the party leadership in Vyatka that supported Navasyolov and Kuchkin. It's one of the more, uh, I think, interesting parts of my book about this this conflict between Vyatka's people and the apostate in Moscow. Andrei Kuchkin, as a matter of fact, went on to become a very prominent historian. He died in the 1970s. He received two orders of Lenin. And what exactly was the conflict? If I remember correctly, there was conflict over criticism that an article written by some of Novosyolov's um, students presented, noting that Mensheviks were primarily the main movers and shakers in Vyatka, and that the Bolsheviks had actually signed a cooperation agreement with them, Kuchkin actually being the Bolshevik who signed the cooperation agreement. Um, Do I have the details correct? Yeah. uh, 
there, as I mentioned earlier, there was no independent Bolshevik Party organization in Gatka until late May 1917. Until then, there was a unified organization of Bolsheviks and Mensheviks in Gatka. This also happened in many other places uh, in Russia in 1917. It was a recreation of the old Social Democratic Party, in effect, uh, before it uh, devolved into Bolshevik and Menshevik factions in 1903. Uh, and Kuchkin had been part of that united organization and had cooperated with Mensheviks. And this was a point being made by Navasyolov uh, in Gatka, but it was a point that Kuchkin was very uncomfortable with. And he had to say, well, yes, he had worked with Mensheviks, but only to expose them. And he, he embellished his own role as a militant Bolshevik in early and mid-1917. Kuchkin was part of this emerging, his effort was part of, in 1927, of this emerging uh, narrative that the Bolshevik party dominated events throughout Russia, not just in Moscow or St. Petersburg, uh, although one could question whether Dom was dominant there as well, but in the provinces. And do you think he embellished his role and said that he only worked with Mensheviks to expose them uh, because he was egotistical? Or this was the beginnings of sort of political ass covering? He, he was self-promoting. He wanted to make himself uh, a better Bolshevik than all other Bolsheviks uh, throughout the nation, one could, one could say. He, he continued to publish this kind of stuff. Uh, well into the 1930s that embellished his role. And then again in the 1950s, he returned to the subject to embellish his role uh, in Gatka in 1917 as a leading, prominent, militant Bolshevik in a party uh, whose significance he embellished. He embellished his own significance and thereby embellished the significance of the party. Um, the man was on a warpath to promote himself. And his... Uh, and he did, after he left Yet, he served in other areas uh, of Soviet Russia. And he wrote uh, articles and books about his role here and there in which he embellished his role. So it wasn't due to fear of political repercussion for having worked with Mensheviks? Oh, absolutely not. Because so many Bolsheviks had worked with Mensheviks. This was extremely common in 1917. There was a plethora of united organizations. And this was commonly discussed in East Park's literature uh, throughout the mid-1920s and even into 1927. It admissioned that in many cases, uh, Bolsheviks had not existed as an independent party organization because there wasn't the funding for it and the Bolsheviks were numerically weak, not just in Vietka, but elsewhere, although clearly numerically weak, almost non-existent in Vietka. So how is the history of 1917 rewritten on a national scale over time? All right. All right. The national the grand narrative for 1917 uh, begins to emerge in the mid-1920s, and it's evident by 1927 and 1928. <clears throat> the grand narrative denies the role of spontaneity in 1917. 
uh, denies that, by and large, that workers, soldiers, peasants, and members of non-Russian nationalities acted on their own spontaneously seeking reform, not necessarily political revolution, to address their needs at home, at work, in the trenches, to end uh, discrimination against non-Russian nationalities. Uh, it also denies the numerical weakness of the Bolshevik party, uh, especially in the provinces, it denies the distinctive history of the Russian provinces, including the distinctive history in Vietka, about which we have discussed. Uh, it denies uh, the role and importance of other political parties, especially leftist political parties, the Mensheviks and the Socialist Revolutionaries in events of 1917. It's a history that argues that the Bolsheviks dominated events in 1917. And if and when it did not dominate, it was due to the traitor's behavior, uh, particularly of Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries. And how did this conflict between this grand narrative that was politically useful and scholarly history get displayed in history that the public would consume, particularly things like museum displays and other exhibits? I talk uh, quite a bit uh, about the Museum of the Revolution in Vietka. Uh, it was created in the fall, opened in the fall of 1927, and it still presented Vietka's distinctive history uh, before 1917, in 1917, and after 1917. It was a museum that was very much about Vietka and not about events in Moscow or Petrograd or St. Petersburg. Therefore, its display in 1927 of what happened in 1917 was totally uninspiring because there was no October in Vietka in 1917. Uh, so they, if they're going to be true to what happened, uh, there was an absence of fiery placards, banners, photographs, deadly weapons, because of all of that did not play a role in Vietka in 1970, in fact, in 1917. And so visitors didn't, and they wrote uh, comments in the visitor's book, the guest book. They rarely commented about the 1917 exhibit because it wasn't, on, it wasn't interesting. It wasn't inspiring. They commented, commented about other exhibits. If you go to that museum in the mid-1930s, then there's a different exhibit for 1917. It's one that emphasizes the grand narrative. But that was not the case when it opened uh, in the fall of 1927. I, I, by the way, if you go to Kirov, Vyatka, Kirov today and visit what essentially is the uh, descendant of the Museum of the Revolution, you will find on display the grand narrative for 1917. There's very little of Vietka's distinctive history emphasized there for 1917. Is this the diorama? The diorama, absolutely. And it's wonderful. It's inspiring. It's exciting history. And much of it didn't happen. So why would Vietka's museum have made an exhibit about things that... Uh, you know, where nothing basically happened, why would they go and present the boring history to the local populace initially instead of presenting the exciting history? 
Well, the Atticus people, Novus Yolf by this time is gone. He had tuberculosis, and he asked for and received an assignment to the North Caucasus in the hope that uh, he could uh, survive better his tuberculosis. But the people who followed Novus Yolf in East Park and at the Museum of the Revolution were still, in the fall of 1927, reluctant to falsify the history of their own region not necessarily for scholarly reasons, simply because they were local patriots and they felt that they should not uh, uh, render something that wasn't. So I think it's just a matter of, of Yatka's people saying, this is our history. We're not going, we, we may tinker with it a bit, but we're not going to, under, we're not going to undertake a thorough a falsification of it. How did the politicization of history affect the archival collections? The uh, Well, there was all, always a political element there, and I mentioned Novoselov's uh, role, uh, the role that he was assigned to uh, serve as a kind of censor for the political section uh, in the local archive. When the grand narrative for 1917 came into play uh, in the late 1920s, uh, this meant a closure of uh, uh, not necessarily of party archives, but a, re- a, a vetting of any researchers who wanted to work there. And you were vetted uh, insofar as you had to demonstrate that the result of your research would be a highly politicized uh, narrative for 1917. Uh, also, a number of documents were destroyed burned, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, just too much paper, or lost, or served as uh, bandages in hospitals, um, or uh, recycled. There was a severe paper shortage. So the politicization of 1917 meant uh, uh, destruction of documents, willy-nilly destruction of documents, and limited access to scholars and non-scholars alike. Would you characterize the destruction of documents as a cover-up? Do you think they were trying to hide unsavory elements of the past? Or was it simply pragmatic that the uh, repositories were overcrowded, there was a shortage of paper, and sometimes they even needed fuel? Excellent question. I I think sometimes it was an intentional destruction of documents that were unsavory, but by and large, just too much paper, too much stuff, uh, not enough place for too much stuff, or uh, a failure to appreciate that the uh, paper was uh, uh, important, if not important today, perhaps important to scholars decades from now. Uh, and a lot of, and it was burned for fuel. Um, the uh, I've forgotten what I wanted to say, um, but uh, um, the oh, and in many cases they were never the documentation was not preserved in the first place. I mean, this, this stuff, these documents, this paper was just lying around everywhere uh, throughout the 1920s, and people were just throwing it out because they didn't know what they were throwing out. Or if they did know, they didn't appreciate its potential significance. And so what does this mean for modern historians? What has been lost? Well, 
We don't know what's been lost. We don't know what we don't know. Uh, this is also true of, uh, uh, our, uh, of the effort by Archives Today to preserve documents. Uh, you and I don't know what is not, what is not preserved by the archivists. They make uh, they make decisions. Let us hope they make uh, decisions with an appreciation of the scholarship. That is to come if, if important documents are preserved, but clearly not everything is is preserved. Uh, and it's the archivists, let us hope with careful training in this uh, craft, who make that decision, what to keep, what not to keep. We as historians are at the, are, are at the, uh, um, are, are in a sense at the disposal of the archivists who make these decisions. So why does ISPART die out, and what were the ramifications of its death? ISPART was dying out when the grand historical narrative took over and uh, ISPART's dual mission ceased to exist. The faith in the symbiosis of historical scholarship and political utility died, and thereby ISPART lost its, its initial mission. As an organization, it was absorbed late in late 1928 by its highly politicized rival, uh, the Lenin Institute, and East Part at that point ceased to exist. Now, in the provinces, East Part uh, continued to exist here and there, Vyatka's East Part disappeared in 1929. And what were the ramifications of East Part's disappearance? Were there any? Well, the ramifications are already apparent. Uh, the death of the dual mission, the the uh, slow death uh, of the faith in a symbiosis of historical scholarship and political utility. So East Part, in that sense, had already died, or all, uh, or was in its death throes before it ceased to exist as an organization in 1928. How were East Part's efforts characterized by Stalin in his ventures into writing and understanding history, which of course culminates in the publication of the short course in 1938? Well, Stalin was one of those individuals in the 1920s who uh, wanted a grand narrative that emphasized the dominance of the Bolshevik Party throughout uh, 1917 with a a few exceptions. However, he did not dictate that. Uh, as I inferred earlier in our discussion, party historians understood what was expected of them and what and what they expected of themselves in adhering to the grand, highly politicized narrative for 1917. Now, Stalin did make some points uh, about the writing of history in his famous letter to the journal Proletarian Revolution, which was now sponsored by the Lenin Institute in 1931. It was published in late 1931 in that journal and in a number of journals and was sold on the street for five kopecks. There, Stalin clearly rejected the principle of historical scholarship. And when he turned to a discussion of 1917, uh, he made it clear there, and in particular in his behavior thereafter, that he wanted not only a rendition of 1917 that emphasized the party's triumphant role, 
with little or no recognition of distinctive regional histories, but he made it clear that no one should discuss his own support of the provisional government and Russia's involvement in the war in early 1917. So he, uh, what was left of East Bart's version of 1917, and this was somewhat apparent in a fourth volume of the History of the Communist Party that was published in 1929, edited by Yaroslavsky. Uh, Stalin did not appreciate much of what was said there about 1917. And he made it very clear to Yaroslavsky, who may have suffered a nervous breakdown as a result of uh, Stalin's treatment of him. I discussed that at some length in one of the later chapters of the book. So what happens to the former members of East Part in Moscow and Vyatka? Do they have similar fates like Yaroslavsky? Do they, too, have mental or physical breakdowns? Do they get rounded up in the gulag? Uh, Yaroslavsky survived his nervous breakdown to die a natural death, uh, I think, in 1943. But many of East Bart's historians had worse than a nervous breakdown. There were many who were arrested and shot. Um, many. It's a, it's a very sad uh, a fate, which I discuss in some detail in, I think, the... Uh, final chapter of the book. Novosyolov and Vyadka survived, uh, but in 1930, until 1935, he was a minor party official in Moscow in 1935, and he was purged from the party, and he then disappears, and I suspect uh, that he disappeared into the prison camp system and probably did not survive it for long. You mentioned with Novoselov that there was some sort of scandal with his party documents being filled out incorrectly. Would you like to tell our readers about that? Well, this is difficult to explain. Uh, he was purged on an invented charge in 1927. Uh, every member of the Communist Party uh, in Russia had to reapply for party membership. And when he reapplied, he wrote down that he had entered the party in 1925. He, in fact, had entered the party in 1920. When his documents were reviewed by a purge commission uh, in Moscow in 1935, they noted that he had written down 1925 as the date of his entry, but understood that he had entered the party in 1920, and thereby they concluded that he must have been purged sometime between 1920 and 1925, which was not, in fact, the case. Uh, but they concluded that that was the case, thereby concluded that he had concealed his purge in the process of a verification of documents over the many years, and thereby purged him for it. He had probably written 1925 as his date of entry because that year, the Russian Communist Party was renamed the All-Union Communist Party. So that technically, he had entered that party in 1925. But the people reviewing his documents in Moscow um, uh, chose not to um, discover that. So the poor man, because of a, one might say, clerical error, uh, was purged. Although they, there may have been other things unsaid, unknown, that led to his purge as well. 
So what do you think the main takeaway should be from this book? What do you want your readers to remember? Historical scholarship is fragile. Historians must adhere firmly to the canon of historical scholarship and civil discourse, or we professional historians will lose our way and our uh, scholarship uh, will cease. And that is uh, uh, particularly relevant, I think, to uh, events in the Russian Federation today when there is an effort on the part of some politicians and some scholars as well, would-be scholars, to uh, write a somewhat false triumphalist version of the Soviet Union's role in World War II. They have every right to argue that people in the West should not debase or degrade the significance of the Soviet contribution to the victory over Nazi Germany, but they don't have a right to write a simply triumphalist version of the Soviet Union involvement in the war that uh, uh, ignores or diminishes the difficulties the Soviet Union experienced uh, at the front in the trenches and in the home front. Uh, I hope also my book emphasizes the importance of center-periphery relations and the importance of the periphery. Uh, Even in a highly authoritarian regime, um, the periphery amounts to something. Uh, Putin likes to talk about the power vertical, as he calls it. And there is a powerful power vertical Putin is a dominant, authoritative, some would argue authoritarian leader. But the provinces still count for something. And, for example, recently uh, people in the city of Yekaterinburg, the fourth fourth largest city in the Russian Federation, spontaneously erupted to oppose the creation of an Orthodox cathedral in the city's park in the center of the city, the cathedral would have destroyed the park. And it was an effort, the the construction of the cathedral, that was supported by Putin. The people demonstrated against it, and they won. Well, this sounds like an absolutely fascinating book, Larry. So thank you for coming on and discussing it with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.